This is Jackie Ray Naaman Jones. I play Debbie in Monos, the Hands of Fate, and you're listening to Monster Kid Radio. Right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we've got Jackie Ray Naaman Jones from the 1966 classic film Manos the Hands of Fate on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. This is episode 40, and I am Derek M. Cook, your producer and host. Now, the music that you're hearing right now is from the band Wave Sauce. It's the song Black Cat Strut. You can find out more about the band over at their website, wavesauce.com. You can find that over in the show notes at monsterkidradio.net, where we have all of our information, including our email address, which is monsterkidradio at gmail.com, and our voicemail line at 503-479-5MKR. There's also a link to our Facebook group, which is where I recently got some feedback, which I'll be going over at the end of the show. I'm really excited. Uh, Jackie was an amazing guest to have here on Monster Kid Radio. I really enjoyed speaking with her. And I am going to include in the show notes links to all of her websites and that sort of thing. But just so you know, you can find it at debbiesmanos.blogspot.com. From here, you can get a link to her Etsy store where she's selling all of her artwork as well as just other cool stuff. Now, not in part one, but in part two, I'm going to reference something that she recently posted on her website. So you might want to go and, well, consider it homework. Go get caught up a little bit and, well, come back for part two of our interview when we reference some of those things. This is part one. We're going to talk a little bit about her background, how she got involved with Manos, that sort of thing, and kind of the journey that she went through as a child actress in this movie that holds a certain distinction in classic monster moviedom. Like I said, we also have a tiny bit of feedback that we're going to get to at the very end of the show, and then I've got a special announcement, well, a continuing special announcement about the event that I'm doing tomorrow night here in Tigard, Oregon. It's in the Portland, Oregon area at the Joy Cinema. I'm hosting the Pacific Northwest theatrical premiere of Christopher R. Mims' 2013 film, The Giant Spider. I'll talk a little bit more about that after part one of the interview, right after this. It's 1966. The space race is on. The Cold War is heating up. And giant monsters are destroying Japan. Dai Kaiju Attack. The serialized giant monster story. Presented free every week on DaiKaijuAttack.com and SDSullivan.com. Become a member of the Dai Kaiju Attack group on Facebook. Join the action today. Monster Kid Radio listeners, I'd like to welcome to the show Jackie Ray Naaman Jones, a woman who's in a movie that you probably already have in your collection if you're a fan of the not so classic monster movies of yesteryear. And of course, I'm talking about Curse of Bigfoot. No, I mean, I'm talking about <laughs> Manos, the Hands of Fate. Jackie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> he threw me there. <laughs> yeah, I actually just watched Curse of Bigfoot this morning in preparation of our chat because oh, I knew you were in it somewhere. Did you find me? I'm assuming you're in one of the opening scenes in the classroom. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was like, what, 1976, I yes. think. 
Yeah. That particular scene, the movie didn't begin in 1976. Yeah, it's actually an interesting one. It began as Teenagers versus The Thing. Yeah, it started being filmed, like, wasn't it the late 50s or something? Right. Yeah, and shelved, and then somebody decided to finish it. And my theater teacher, my drama teacher in high school, was friends with somebody who was doing that. And our drama class was chosen, so we came in on a Saturday and sat in the classroom and did that scene. Wow. <laughs> So, so it really left an impact on your film career and on. <laughs> oh man! Well, apparently, I've been cursed. You know, <laughs> the, the hands, the hands of fate have cursed me. <laughs> it can be a seek or a versus kind of film. There you go. There we go. Absolutely, would be unwatchable. <laughs> no, Curse of Bigfoot is way worse than Monos. I mean, I I don't know that I've ever watched it all the way through. I don't think I could. You know, I think Manos actually gets a bad rap. I actually, in a weird way, enjoy the movie, even without the assistance of Mystery Science Theater 3000. It's an interesting film. And, of course, that's what you're most known for and why we wanted to have you on Monster Kid Radio to talk about the movie and your memories and your experiences with it. Thank you. Well, it's interesting with the restoration. When that idea came up, people would kind of look askance and say, well, if you're restoring it and making it look better, then what's that going to do to its status as the worst movie ever made? <laughs> you know, and the truth is, I don't know how to say it, but it makes it 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 makes it easier to watch. It does not make it a better movie. It just makes all the things <laughs> that the fans seem to love so much about it better uh, you know you're able to see things you could never see before like the the can of lighter fluid left in the scene when my dad's lighting torgo's hand on fire <laughs> or when my dad's walking and holding up the robe so as not to trip on it and you can see his rolled up jeans underneath you know these are things that were not visible in the muddy version in the mst version <laughs> And the restoration, there was a Kickstarter project for that. I was involved in that. And, I mean, they're still working on making that happen. That's going to be happening or, or coming out, I'm, I'm hoping, sometime next year. Is that what I heard? The restoration? Yeah. Um, well, it's already showing in theaters or screenings. Mm-hmm. I was able to go to uh, Seattle in August to a screening at the Uptown Theater that was sponsored by the Seattle Independent Film Festival, and it was just great. I got to see my name in the lights on the marquee. <laughs> that was awesome. Did a Q&A. They were just so gracious up there. But the restoration has been screening in different places. It's been in Pennsylvania. It'll be in Chicago at the Music Box, I believe, on the 24th next week. I've heard it's even going, I think it's Denmark or I don't know, you know, it's it's getting out there. But Synopsis is the distributor. And from what I understand from Ben Solovey, who's doing the restoration, that it's in their court now. They have everything to distribute it. And so I would suggest that the fans contact Synopsis and say, come on, we're waiting. We want our DVD. <laughs> Oh, that's uh, Synapse, isn't it? 
is it Synapse Films? Synapse, yeah, okay. Yeah. And I'll make sure there's links to their website as well as the Manos and HD website in the show notes of this episode so you guys can find it and just kind of follow along and see what's going on with the latest. I'm still waiting for my Blu-ray. I can't wait to watch it. I oh, haven't had a chance to so see it at a screening yet. So. <laughs> I mean, it's so bad. I don't know. How do you say it? It's, <laughs> it's so wonderfully bad. It's... Uh, it's incredible to me to see it so clear, the the different framing of the shots, the clarity, the color. The color's amazing. And it's really cool for me personally. You know, my ego has helped to see that there's a little more of me in the restoration than, than the top of my head. You know, <laughs> I was cut off so much. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, that's what's happening with Manos now. This Manos journey began back in 66 or I mean, even maybe even before that when it started production and you were approached by your father who played the master in the film to be in the movie. Do you remember what went through your mind when that happened, when he said, hey, Debbie, you know, hey, I even called you Debbie. Hey, Jackie, let's be in a movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. I remember him coming home and saying to me, honey, I'm doing a movie and we need a little girl. Would you like to be that little girl? And I remember thinking, you know, I mean, that was scary to me. I was such a shy, introspective <laughs> type of child that I, I, it just never occurred to me at six years old acting. I knew my dad did that, but it never occurred to me. So I said, I don't know. And he said, well, that's okay, honey, if you don't want to. We can always get another little girl. And I thought, you know, the equivalent, the six-year-old equivalent of love, Hell no. No other little girl's going to hang out with my daddy. Uh-huh. And so, you know, instantly I said yes. I didn't had no idea what it entailed, but I did know that it gave me the opportunity to be with him. Mm -hmm. And so I jumped all over that. Your father had done a lot of community theater. Had you had any experience on stage performing at all prior to this? No, not at that point. I mean, I did. I definitely caught the acting bug from that point, and my parents enrolled me in drama school through the theater. My dad acted at the uh, festival theater, and they had children's theater classes, and I met some of the best friends of my childhood through that going to the drama classes and uh, I just recently found a playbill which was very cool it was the one and only time I was ever in a play with my father at the festival it was the prime of Miss Jean Brody and uh, the actress from Hollywood came all the way out to El Paso as a special guest to play Jean Brody and that was Julie Adams <gasps> No. Yes. Just found the playbill. And wow. so my dad played, what's his name? Lother. He played the, the lead role opposite Julie Adams. Oh, no. And and I played <laughs> one of the little schoolgirls. And I only had two lines in the whole play, and I screwed him up every single night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I remember that. I remember how exciting it was for me and I think I was like nine it was like two years later it would have been I'll have to look at the playbill but I think it was like 1968 
listeners of Monster Kid Radio know that I've got a huge, and I'll admit it, a huge crush on Julie Adams. Oh, uh, God, you, know, you just gasped. I know. Yeah, I, that was I, <laughs> I refer to her as my 50s girlfriend. Um, I just <laughs> Very cool. Well, you know, I wow. just noticed recently that I don't know what film you would know, but I noticed that she has been in some movies that Mystery Science Theater has riffed, or at least a film. And I thought, well, there you go. There's another interesting degree of separation, you know? <laughs> uh-huh. That's fantastic. That's amazing. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, see, I should see? write about that. That's a whole other thing. I mean, Julie Adams, my dad played opposite Julie Adams in The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. You said that I threw you off at the beginning. You've thrown me off here. Hold on a second. <laughs> Take a breath. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, yeah, there we go. Okay. <laughs> so, you said that you did some theater and that sort of thing, but these days you're an artist, so they're both very creative endeavors and that sort of thing. What was the transition from Manos to Jackie the Artist now? My dad was always an artist, and I grew up, besides him being in theater, I spent a lot of time in his studio and I've always been an artist, always been inspired that way. And my family, um, we lived in a 100-year-old adobe house. It was in a constant state of remodel, you know, walls being torn down or things being built or tiled or whatever. And, And my dad's sculptures being created. And I was raised in a very creative household but also in a in a strange place in the middle 60s in El Paso Texas and and we were the only white family in my neighborhood and my parents were the only people the only adults really in the neighborhood that were college educated and so it just set us really aside it was just such an interesting time to be in El Paso and and for Manos to happen, you know, all the, mm-hmm. the combination of things to come together for Manos to even exist is uh, really interesting. Oh, so I followed my dad into art and theater, and I pursued theater on through high school, and then I made a very clear decision, really, one direction or the other, and I put my hard into doing my art, which worked out probably better in the long run because I ended up making a a living at it. I just, timing and all, I became a faux finisher. I I did hand-painted clothing for like eight years. Oh, wow. And I made a living off of that. And then I I kind of fell into doing faux finish uh, wall treatments, stenciling, all kinds of things. I mean, my I, it was just such an amazing career for like over 20 years. Every job was brand new and I loved it and I made pretty good money and I was able to raise my children as a single mom, as an artist. Then the market crashed, you know, mm-hmm. 2008 and I've been struggling ever since, but now I'm doing paintings and I'm doing my own art I'm selling on Etsy I'm doing shows and and it's slow but it seems like it's really suddenly starting to happen you know, I'm really focused on it but the crazy thing is too is 
I never lost my love of theater, and I've always enjoyed talking to people and being public, and so I had this opportunity to be in this play, this Monos play, and that was because of my blog, this guy in Portland was creating this play, mm-hmm. Monos, The Hands of Fate, on stage, and he got a hold of me because he found me through my blog and said, uh, would you like to participate in any way? And here it was six weeks after my youngest son moved out, and I had said all those years that when my kids grew up, I would get back into theater. And six weeks later, I get a call saying, would you like to be involved? So I played the voice of Debbie in this play, and my character was a doll on stage. <laughs> Poetic justice. It you is, know, because... De- Debbie was voiced by a middle-aged woman mm-hmm. in the original, and so this time, the middle-aged woman is Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> How cool is that? That's very, like you said, it's poetic justice. It's the the circle is now complete, you know? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, for me it is. <laughs> now, through all of this time, be, being an artist and doing all of this non-film, non-theatrical work, was there an intentional decision on your behalf to kind of distance yourself from Manos? Or has there always been a love for the film? Well, when we saw it in 1966, it's um, you know, it's it definitely worse for my parents <laughs> than it was for me. You know, uh, I mean, it was horrible for me because I did not know my voice was going to be dubbed, and I was pretty horrified to hear that while sitting in the audience, all dolled up. But I got over that. But. You know, it's one of those things. We got to see it, and then we never got to see it again. And so I grew up. I had these memories of this wonderful time with my dad, and it was a real family kind of thing. I mean, my dog was in it, you know, and I never got to see it again, and it disappeared. I searched for it as I grew up. And then in 1993, I had one child, and... You know, I'd only been married a few years, and my dad calls me up and says, you'll never believe what I just saw on television. (laughs) I mean, I'd searched for it. My high school friends will tell you that they remember me talking about it. And then there I was, and there he was. Uh, So we were pretty excited. I actually, the way it came about was he called me, and so then I turned on Comedy Central, which is Mystery Science Theater was on Comedy Central, Mm -hmm. so I turned it on, but the program was over. I mean, he had watched in horrid fascination, (laughs) (laughs) didn't call me till it was over, so it was too late. But I called the 800 number, and I got a hold of this young man in um, Manhattan. He said he was in the HBO offices on a Saturday in Manhattan, and I said, you just show this film, and... I've been looking for it for years, and my family was in it. Is there any way I could get a copy? And he said, well, what was the name of it? And I told him, and he pauses, and he says, oh, my God, are you Debbie? I was shocked. I had been looking for it my whole life, and here it is, 1993, and there it was on television, and this guy knew who I was. So he sent me a copy, and I thought that would be the end of it. But then I started seeing it everywhere. 
I started seeing it on television and packaged sets for special occasions. I, I saw it in the cult movie section at Blockbuster. And, <laughs> you know, it just keeps growing. It's crazy. It's like Mono's Rock Opera of Fate, mm-hmm. Mono's Hands of Felt, The Restoration, The Game, The Play. It just goes on and on. It's just growing. I've heard that the movie was pretty much in obscurity. Nobody had heard of it or knew it was anything about it until it got played on Mystery Science Theater. I've always thought that it was kind of maybe like an urban legend kind of thing, that MST3K may not have been responsible for it. But it sounds like maybe they are the ones that brought it to the forefront of people who are into these types of movies. They get all the credit for that. It would not exist if it weren't for them. I mean, it was gone. And also because of Ben now restoring it, you know, in all its original glory, if not better, I don't, you know, wow. <laughs> but when you were making the movie, you were, what, seven years old? I mean, you certainly mm-hmm. didn't have any idea where, what Manos would become in the future. Oh, no. It was just really. hanging out with your dad making a movie, it sounds like. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I got to be the only kid on the set. It was just an amazing time of uh, getting that attention from the wives, you know, the, all these young women, modeling students. Uh, they thought having a little girl around was like a living doll, you know, <laughs> and I was an only child at the time, so I was loving it. And then the other thing was I was always uh, quite uh, observant. I was the kind of kid that is quiet. They're, they're the, I'm, I was the kid you need to be careful about because I <laughs> watched everything, you know? I just, uh-huh. I absorbed everything, but I stayed out of the way. So I just remember being a little kid and thinking how cool it was that they were making this movie and that I knew that the cast and crew kept their brown bag lunches in the refrigerator in the kitchen there. And that I knew that the costumes were kept in the closet of the bedroom, you know, where Maggie's being peered at through the window. (laughs) (laughs) And then poking around in the desert and having, you know, having that uh, attention, but also having the free time and the freedom to just go off and explore. Kids dream, you know, really. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you have a lot of memories of the director of Harold P. Warren? Some, yeah. I just, I just remember he, he did not have children at the time. He didn't really know how to deal with children. And I don't know that he was so warm and fuzzy with anybody, really. It wasn't his style. But from my viewpoint, I was just kind of always felt like I was just kind of a prop, you know. You can even see in there at one point, I think he pats me on the head. <laughs> um, <laughs> Pepe, Pepe the Poodle was his dog. Okay. That was his family dog. And our family dog was the Doberman. But I look at him, pat me on the head like that. <laughs> or the way he picks me up in the desert like a sack of potatoes, you know. <laughs> I really, I was more a prop. Uh to him than anything i mean you know he just didn't know how to relate to children was it awkward having this guy who's acting as your father you know on one part of the set and then your father who's the villain of the piece you know lurking in that 
black robe, which is amazing, by the way. The robe is gorgeous. Oh, yeah. You know, in that iconic robe. Was it odd having this other guy that you're supposed to be treating as your dad, even though your dad's really over there? I mean, what was that I like? don't think so. And I, and I think that was because of the way I was raised. <laughs> it's like, I mean, my family, like I said, was different. And my dad was around the theater. And even at that age, every chance I got, I was in the theater. So I was really accustomed to people acting differently over here and then breaking character and drinking a soda or having a conversation with somebody. It was normal to me. My dad was always in theater since I was a baby. So I was accustomed to him rehearsing parts and being one way or the other and knowing that it was make-believe, you okay. know. that it's going to continue to be cool in part two when we come back to talk a little bit more with jackie about some more observations that she's had over the years looking back on her experiences with monos as well as where monos is today we referenced a couple of times the monos restoration if you go to monos in hd Dot com. You can find out everything that you want to know about the restoration efforts to make Manos look as good as it possibly can. It's going to be released by Synapse Films eventually, and I cannot wait for that to happen. Again, there will be links to Jackie's website, the restoration website, as well as Synapse Film over in the show notes at monsterkidradio.net. I mentioned that I had some feedback. This came in from listener Bill R., I was listening to Monster Kid Radio episode number 39 on my way home today and was enjoying the conversation about punk and metal bands that would be considered MKR friendly. Yourself and Eric Peterson, Eric was the guest in that episode, mentioned some great New York area punk bands. However, as a New Yorker and punk, mostly hardcore punk enthusiast myself, it dawned on me that you two failed to mention one of the best dark punk bands in NYC and music ever, Typo Negative. Sadly, the lead singer is now deceased as of a few years ago, and the band split up. Still, they're a must with songs such as Black Number One, with references to vampires, and Lily Munster, they're very campy and have a lot of classic horror and sci-fi themes. Although you might want to censor some of their more hardcore songs from younger kids. Give it a listen, and you might like what you hear. Now, what I told Bill is that I don't have a lot of experience with typo negative, so... It does sound like something that I need to check out. I am going to start looking around to see if I can get some of their music and put it on my iPod and check it out. As I told Eric when I had him on the show to talk about the Crimson Ghost, my musical journey was all over the map. And I think the time when something like Typo Negative or a lot of this punk really would have appealed to a younger Derek, I was still stuck in, I'm going to be a rapper when I grew up mode. So I just wasn't paying attention to that. And I'm learning now as I'm older and going back and listening to a lot of this music that younger Derek was kind of dumb and really should have paid more attention to the wider world around him and, and tried more things out. So again, thank you for the suggestion and thank you for sending in some feedback here at Monster Kid Radio. Again, if people want to get involved and shoot me a message, you can do so by email monsterkidradio at gmail.com or drop me a voicemail at 503-4795-MKR. Finally, I want to remind everybody that tomorrow night, October 23rd, at the Joy Cinema in Tigard, Oregon, and it's just right outside of Portland, it's real easy to get to, it's not that far away, is the Pacific Northwest theatrical premiere of Christopher R. Mim's The Giant Spider. Now, we had Christopher R. Mim 
on the show, nearly at the very beginning of the show. He's one of our first guests here on Monster Kid Radio. I want to have him back on the show so we can talk more about what he's got going on. He's in production right now on his next project. To see the most recent project, The Giant Spider, on the big screen for free as part of Joy Cinema's Weird Wednesday series, join me at the Joy Cinema at 9 p.m. Wednesday night, October 23rd. It is a free event. They do serve alcohol, and because of that, you have to be 21 and over only to get in. You can find out more about what The Joy Cinema does over at thejoycinema.com or look them up on Facebook or look up the Monster Kid Radio Crash event on Facebook. What is a Monster Kid Radio Crash? Well, basically, I show up at one of these events, typically at a movie screening, and I try to meet up with as many listeners of Monster Kid Radio as possible. And according to the Facebook page, a handful of people said they are going to be there, so I'm looking forward to meeting you. I'm going to have my recorder with me, so maybe we can record a little bit. I'm going to be hosting the movie, which basically means I'm going to get up and talk for a few minutes about the movie before the movie rolls. This is going to be... A blast. I love the Joy Cinema, and I think you will too if you join me there Wednesday, October 23rd. What I record at the Joy Cinema at this screening will appear on a future episode of Monster Kid Radio, so if you're not in the Portland area, I'll still try to hook you up. But if you are in the area, you have no excuse. It's free. 9 p.m. The Joy Cinema. Join me. In a couple of days, we've got part two of our discussion with Jackie and all things Manos the Hands of Fate. I really enjoyed where part two of our conversation went. And I hope you will too, and I hope you'll come back to check that out. Also, big thanks to Wave Sauce for allowing us to play their music here on the show. Of course, we'll be going out on the song that you heard at the very beginning, Black Cat Strut. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivations, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that does not apply to the song Black Cat Strut. That belongs to Wave Sauce, which, as I said, appears by permission of the band. Talk to you in a couple of days.